Thanks, Rob. Morning, everyone. All right, we got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to hop right in. So, um, to review what we've done the past couple of weeks, we've been going through a study on, I guess, broadly speaking, what is the Christian life? What are the characteristics of the Christian life? Um, and what does it look like to live out these basic principles in our life on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, we started out by asking these really sort of fundamental questions. Why should one be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple? Why should you follow Jesus? Um, and so the questions and the answers that followed there are probably review for most of us in here. Um, but I think the obvious does bear repeating a lot of the time. And so um, especially when we live in a time where self-evident things are now doubted, um, I think it's good for us to review things that are basic and obvious um, with that. And so now as we've um, kind of gone through those elemental things or those fundamental things, we're now approaching um, what it looks like to live out these things in different areas of our lives. What does it look like to live the godly life? And so last week Rob gave an overview of what this is. Um, and this morning I'm beginning what is going to be the first of four weeks looking at different characteristics of the godly life. Um, and so as we ask again today, what is the godly life? The, the aspect of that that we're going to focus on this morning is stewardship. Um, and that's a word we toss around a lot in Christian circles. You even occasionally hear it outside of Christian circles. Um, but it's one of those characteristics and one of those qualities that demonstrates uh, the work of the Lord in our lives. Um, and so as we approach this lesson, we're, we're going to keep going back to that question that um, we asked a few weeks ago from Francis Schaeffer then. If all these things are true, if we trust the Bible, if we do what it says, then the question is, how should we then live? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And as we think about this, we approach it with the attitude that, that I also mentioned a few weeks ago, which is how do we take all of Christ for all of life? It's not sectioned off to just a Sunday morning, and it's not um, something we only do when we're in some official church activity, but it's how does the fact that we are born-again believers and that we are um, part of God's kingdom, how does that affect every aspect of our life from tomorrow morning when we go into work um, to when we're Friday night doing something um, with family or friends, how does that look in our life? Um, and so we're going to come back to this point too at many junctures in this lesson. If we read the Bible and we apply the words in there as they're plainly written, um, we're going to be startled at the degree to which it cuts across our lives and um, cuts, cuts against the grain of the way that we think and the way that we've been conditioned um, over the years. And so when we find that it offends our sensibilities and steps on our toes, that's when we know that we're approaching the truth of what God means for us and that we need to adjust our lives to accommodate um, what he tells us in his word. Um, so the subject text for this morning is going to be from the book of Matthew. Um, turn with me to chapter 25 and we're going to go over the parable of the talents. Um, so by way of background or context here, um, this is really part of a, a section in chapter 24 and 25 that's sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. And so what happens here is Jesus' disciples have asked him a simple question. Um, they're wanting to know about when he's going to return. What are the signs of his return? When is he going to come again? 
And so Jesus answers that quickly and then gives a series of parables to further explain the answer that he gives them. Um, and so they want to know when he's going to overthrow the Roman authorities, when the throne of David is going to be established again. Um, and they want to know when the sort of curtain is going to drop on this act of the world and the next phase of the world will begin. And so with that, turn with me to verse 14 and we'll go ahead and read the parable. This is Jesus speaking. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. To the one who had received the five talents, <clears throat> the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you have entrusted me, you have entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But this master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's a lot to cover here in this parable this morning. Um, I think most of us are pretty familiar with this. This is probably one of the most famous parables in all of the Gospels. Um, and for good reason. There's so much that we can learn from it in just these few short verses. Um, starting out really quickly, uh, Jesus begins the parable saying, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. Your Bible may say, for the kingdom of God is like, and that phrase may be in italics there. Those words aren't um, in the original text, but they're very strongly implied by the passage, the passages that precede this. Um, Jesus is connecting, connecting his explanation in this parable to the parable that he previously gave, and ultimately back to the question that his disciples asked him in chapter 24. Um, he is trying to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like or what those are like who are part of the kingdom of heaven that are waiting for the Lord to return. And so when his disciples ask um, when the world will end, when will they know that he's coming back, um, he first answers them very directly and he sets the stage for what the world's going to be like. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and there's going to be all these things happening in the world and you'll see these signs and say, okay, this is the time that the Lord's going to return. It's very imminent. 
Um, but then only a few verses later, he tells them that they're not going to know with specificity when he's going to return. Um, that that's not for them to know and that God in his wisdom is not going to reveal that to his children. But rather than leaving them with kind of an unsatisfying answer there, uh, he quickly goes into four different parables to explain what the waiting on the Lord should look like and how we should be characterized in our living if we don't know when the Lord's going to return. And so he gives them four parables, the parable of the fig tree, the parable of the watchful slave, the parable of the ten virgins, and then the parable of the talents, which we're covering here this morning. And the purpose of each of these parables is to illustrate a certain point or a certain aspect about our waiting, how we should live until Christ returns. The parable of the fig tree tells us um, to sort of observe the times, take note of what's going on around us, pay attention to the world, and see that the world is tending toward this day that Jesus' promise is going to happen. He will return someday, and this is what the world's going to look like when that happens. And so we should be ready and on alert. The parable of the watchful slave teaches us to live on alert in that same way. Um, if God revealed the time of his coming to us, I think many of us would be happy to delay the pressing spiritual matters of our life until we knew that it really mattered. We're going to put this off until I absolutely have to do it. Um, we do this in every aspect of our lives, right? I wouldn't get anything done if it weren't for the last minute when I could actually do it. And so um, this is something that God, uh, I think, knows about us, and this is part of the reason why he doesn't tell us that, and that's part of the reason that he gives the parable of the watchful slave here. The parable of the ten virgins um, says that we ought to be prepared for when he comes, that we're looking for his return, and that we're thinking about that consciously in our lives, that we don't just live day to day acting like he's never going to come back, um, but that we're paying very close attention for him to come, and so that we're like the five virgins that had oil in their lamps and were prepared, and unlike the five that did not have the oil and were unprepared. Um, and that brings us then to the fourth and final parable that Jesus is giving here in this explanation. And this is the parable of the talents. Um, and this is going to illustrate a different point than the previous three parables here. Um, this is going to tell us something about how God expects us to live in light of the fact that he is going to return. Um, so before we get into the details of that, we should first ask ourselves, what is a talent? Why is it called the parable of the talents? Um, so we see here in the parable that the master has three slaves that he calls to him and he gives each one of them talents in varying degrees. It says to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. So the word talent that we use here in our English Bibles can trace its origins all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans, um, and we basically borrow the word from them untranslated. Uh, the, the Latin word used here is a talentum but it's the, basically the exact same word that we use in English. Um, and its meaning at that time was a weight or a, a way of measuring, um, especially metals and things like that. So you would use it to measure gold and silver and copper and um, these precious metals. So it would function sort of like a unit of currency would. Um, and so the idea here is that he's giving his slaves an amount of money or an amount of resources and they're supposed to go do business with that for when he comes back. Um, now, in common English today, we don't use it in terms of currency. We talk about um, people possessing talents. Someone has a talent. And it usually is meant to describe like the aptitude or the innate um, skills or qualities that a person has that makes them fit to do one thing rather than another thing. Um, we sort of contrast that to the skills that we learn by going to school or the things that you learn by lots of practice. You can um, 
grow your talents and um, you know, apply yourself to them to be better at them. But we use the term very often to talk about things that are inborn qualities that are bestowed on us rather than things that we earn ourselves. Um, and this way that we treat this word, the way that we use the word in common English actually comes from this very parable. Um, the word that is used here comes from uh, the currency that Jesus is talking about. That's the, the sort of literal interpretation of that parable. But the way we use it in English comes from the application of the parable. What's the point that Jesus is teaching here? And he's not talking about money per se when he's talking about the parable. He's talking about all of the different gifts that God bestows on each one of us in varying qualities and in varying quantities. And those are the things that God has given to each one of his people. And so we use the term in English in the exact way that Jesus meant the term here in this parable. And so we should see that um, as the master gives talents to his slaves, each according to his own ability, God is giving talents to his people, each according to our own ability and each according to God's wisdom in giving us these talents. Um, now this is a plain fact that we see from the parable here, but there's tons of implications that can be drawn from this in how we see ourselves, how we see God, and how we see the world. Um, this gets down to sort of the essence of human nature and the differences among men. Um, in one sense, we are all equal to one another. Um, in the creation story, we see that God endows all men with his image, that imago Dei that we talk about so often in our Christian circles. Um, regardless of any of our characteristics, we are all intrinsically valuable. Every person has moral worth and standing, and every person um, has the, the same standing before God in regards to who we are innately as a person. Um, and this idea is reflected very much even in our modern culture, um, and even in um, our own history of our own nation. I think we're all familiar with the words in the Declaration of Independence. These go back and hearken to the very first chapter of Genesis, where it says that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, so in one sense, we're all equal in our standing before God, and we're all equal in our standing before the law and no man can claim superiority in any one of those regards. However, when we look beyond this, this sort of fundamental equality that we all share, we see vast differences among people. Um, just looking out in this room, and I know so many of you in here so well, there are so many different talents and all of you are so different in your personalities and giftings um, and the things that you're interested in and the things that you like to do. Um, and the things that you're good at and the things that you're not good at. Um, and we see that uh, there's this huge diversity in the way God has made all of his people. Um, people have different knowledge and abilities. They have different faculties and appearances and characteristics. Um, and this is all very obvious to us when we just stop for a moment and ponder it. Um, he's given some people um, wealth and others are not quite as wealthy. He's given some great athletic skills so that they can go do wonderful things on the, the um, field or huge feats of endurance. Um, he's given many people minds to advance human knowledge um, and others that um, would focus on the more mundane things of life. And um, he's given some sharp wits and quick tongues and others are a little bit slower and softer spoken. He's given some people great heads of hair and some of us have to wear hats. So, um, God has made us all differently and in his own way for his own purposes. And so, um, we see these staggering differences everywhere we look in all kinds of different people. 
Um, and this was by design. Um, he gave us each talents in proportion to our ability and our way to handle them. Um, and it's also important to distinguish here that the master gave each one of the slaves at least one talent. So it's not like some were given talents and others had nothing. Each person, each child of God, each person that um, comes into this house every day and each person that would ostensibly call himself a believer, God has given that person talents, um, abilities, faculties, whatever it is to be used in some way or another. And that may be different than what he's given to someone else and to some he's given more talents than he's given to others. But in all of those things, God has given each one of us some sort of talent. He expects from each one of us that we are going to contribute something with what he's given us. And these are the particular talents for our particular lives. My talents are different from Will's talents, who are different from Jake's talents. And um, all of our talents are meant for our lives. If I had Jake's talents, that wouldn't do me a lot of good in my life. Um, and the same for Jake. And so um, in each one of these things, God has given us the talents that we need for the lives that he's given each one of us. <clears throat> and this is an encouraging thought, I think. Um, we're not here to decide what the talents are that God's bestowed upon us, but we are here to decide what we're going to do with what he's given us. And this is the matter that I think Jesus is concerned with here in the parable. <clears throat> um, it's important to distinguish this from the conversation of spiritual gifts. This parable is not meant to teach about um, some are gifted in one thing and some are gifted in another thing. Um, it, it's really more about your given talents and what are you going to do with those talents? What's the expectation there? <clears throat> um, and so, though we're all of the same body, we make up different parts. And the point in this passage is um, to understand that in God's economy, he expects us to give a return on the talents that he's given us. Um, and the reason he gives this illustration here and where he does in the passage um, is very fitting because it, it acts as a counterweight to the parable of the ten virgins. Um, the Lord is still answering the same question here, and he's answering it by warning us not to behave in different ways here in these parables. The lesson from the ten virgins, the parable of the ten virgins, is that some can be so heavenly minded and they're so preoccupied with the return of the Lord and their eye is always looking to heaven waiting for the clouds to be split, um, that they're of very little good here on earth. They, they do very little work for God's kingdom, and they're so preoccupied with the next life that they never get anything done in this life. And he's warning against that in the parable of the ten virgins. Um, and this is precisely the same warning that Paul gives to the Thessalonians um, in the book of Second Thessalonians. Some in the church there were so expectant of the Lord returning that they had quit their jobs, they had sold all of their possessions, and they were just sitting there waiting for um, Jesus to come back. Um, they were kind of like Jonah sitting on the hillside and they're waiting for God to just smite Nineveh and they're just sitting there looking, he's going to be here any minute now. Um, but just like God did not um, burn the Ninevites when Jonah was sitting there looking at them, in the same way the Lord did not return on the timeline that the Thessalonians were expecting. And so what did Paul say to them in his passage there? He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading undisciplined lives, 
doing no work, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. So some of these people are so expectant of the Lord's return that they're not working at all and kind of become useless. Um, they were neglecting this life and the things that God had called them to in this life because they were so preoccupied with the next one that they were disobeying what God would have them do in this life. The parable of the talents offers a warning, but it's a warning on the opposite problem. Um, it warns those who would put off the important work of the Christian life to focus on their own pleasures and passions and their own preoccupations. Um, it warns against those who are unconcerned about the Lord coming back. Um, these people, you could say, are so worldly-minded that they're no use in heaven. They're so preoccupied on this life that they're not going to be any use in the next. And so, um, just as Paul warned the Thessalonians about the error that they were making, Peter warns those that were mocking believers in his time that were living properly in light of the Lord's return. Peter says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away, and with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. The instruction from Peter here is the opposite instruction that Paul gave to the Thessalonians. <clears throat> there were those in Peter's time that were so preoccupied with their work, that were so preoccupied with the things of this life, that they said, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter says, you're a fool, because the Lord is going to come back, and he's going to call an accounting for what you've done with your life. And so, in the same way, we can't be so constantly looking to heaven that um, we're never doing anything here, and we can't be so preoccupied with this life that we neglect thinking about the Lord returning. And um, this is just a really good illustration of uh, a point someone made to me years ago about understanding how to interpret the scriptures. Um, the parables of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents um, give two commands that kind of feel like they're in tension with each other. Um, they're pulling at each other on both ends. And um, the instructions from Peter and the instructions from Paul here also sort of run against each other in some ways here. But the wise believer is going to be the one um, that will hold the commands of Scripture in tension with one another or in balance with one another. Many times the Bible is going to give us um, instructions to say over on this side of the road is a ditch and also there's another ditch over on that side of the road and the proper way to live the Christian life is to stay down the center of the road on the path that God has called us on, not to go too far to the right or too far to the left that we go into the ditch and make a wreck of our lives. And um, this is really helpful when understanding the commands of Scripture and you see sometimes people get too focused on one thing or too focused on the other ones and they end up like the Thessalonians or they end up like those that Peter was talking to here. And um, you, you see many commands in Scripture that follow this sort of pattern and it's been very helpful for me to understand how do you hold those things in a proper tension so that you feel them pulling at both sides of your will 
at all times. And um, the more that we're able to do that, that's when you're exercising the wisdom and discernment that God gives us as believers to follow his word as he said it. And so as we return to the parable here, um, we can see that these three slaves are given talents by their master. Uh, the first two go and work and earn a return on that money in a diligent manner. They go and trade and they double the master's money. Um, and this is a common relationship that would have been in existence at that time. Um, the, it was very customary for when uh, a master was away that his slaves and his servants would take care of his estate and manage it in his stead um, and act as stewards of his belongings while he was gone. They would be his agents while he is away conducting business. Um, and it's perhaps lost on us in our world where we can travel so quickly and get anywhere in the world within a day, basically. But at that time, if you were going to go be a merchant and you were going to go trade um, in the East or something, you may be gone for months or even years at a time on these very dangerous voyages. And so someone had to take care of your stuff while you're gone. And so that would very often happen here. And so um, the, the slaves and the servants of the master here would manage his estate and they were given this great responsibility in keeping and growing his estate while the master was away and there was an understanding that they would participate in the benefits of that when he returns. And so while the institution of slavery like this is gone in our civilization today, there are arrangements that are not all that different in our modern world. I, I think the most common one is our system of corporations and, and business organization. Um, we see that managers at most companies um, are tasked with the care and the stewardship and the growth of the assets of those companies. Um, usually they're managing those things on behalf of other people, that's why we call them managers. Um, usually the owners of companies, especially the largest companies, have thousands, millions of owners and the managers of those companies are managing that on behalf of the owners of the company. And when they manage it well, they participate in the benefits there. And when they manage it poorly, it's taken away from them. Um, and so we see that this idea exists all throughout history in many different ways. But it's a common theme, and I think it helps us understand how this works here. And so we see that the first two slaves manage his master's money well. And they receive a really glowing commendation from the master. Um, he returns to settle accounts. And that term, settle accounts, is one that's used a lot. But he's basically wanting an accounting. He's wanting to know the results or the returns of his investments, of his assets, while he was away. And so he wants to know how much they profited his estate and um, how they managed his things while he was gone. Um, <clears throat> and so you can see that they manage it well and they get this commendation from the master. Um, but the third slave does not behave in the same way that the first two does, uh, the first two do. The, um, the third slave, rather than investing the money or trading with it <clears throat> or lending it or doing anything that you can do with that money to um, earn a return for the master, he buries it in the ground. And this is a common practice at the time. We even see this in other parables um, where people bury things in the ground. That was a common way of just safekeeping your valuables or your money or anything like that at the time. And so he wanted to keep the talent safe for the master, and so he just stuck it in the ground. <clears throat> Maybe had a little treasure map to get to it, 40 paces this way, and then three from the tree, and that's how you get talent back. Um, and so when he comes back and the master asks for this accounting, he first goes to the first two slaves and says, what have you done? And what did they say to him? After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. 
the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. Even the attitude of the slave when the master comes back is very deferential toward the master. He says, Master, you entrusted this to me. Look what I've done for you. And the master, of course, is very pleased at how this slave has behaved. And what does he say to him? He says, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Um, and so there are three blessings in this response. First, he commends <coughs> the slave for doing good work. This is a job well done. You did well. Um, we had this old phrase that we used to use at work where we would get a big project done and it was kind of a dumpster fire the entire way and it gets done right before the finish line and it's not really great but we got it finished and then the, the CFO would come out and he'd say, well done guys, and we'd say, was it well done? And so he eventually just came out and said, job done, because the job was done. It wasn't necessarily well done, but the job was done. Um, and, but that's not what the master says to the slave here. He says, well done. You did a good job managing my resources while I was gone. The second blessing in that commendation <clears throat> is he says, I'm going to make you responsible for even more than you were responsible for, for before. You get a promotion. You did so well managing this, I'm going to put you in charge of even more than what you were managing before I left. And then the third thing is that he receives the joy of his master. Come and enter the joy of your master. He gets this threefold blessing, this threefold commentation, commendation from the master here. This is really high praise. Um, and yet, when he comes to this third slave, the reaction here is different. <clears throat> he comes and likewise settles accounts with him, but rather than doubling his money, the slave makes ex excuses and blames the master. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See what you have, you have what is yours. <clears throat> the reply from the master here is very swift and very biting too. He doesn't take lightly to um, this statement from this third slave. He says, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Now, we may bristle at our reading of the master's response here some. I, I think our natural inclination is to, um, you know, take pity on those <coughs> that would be in this person's situation. <coughs> um, I mean, after all, this slave did not act like the prodigal son, for example. He didn't take his master's money and go to Corinth and spend it all on hookers and booze. So, um, and in the same way, he wasn't like the unrighteous steward in Luke 16 who mismanaged the possessions of his master. Um, this servant was ostensibly loyal to his master, um, or at least he said he was, and he should have known who his master was. So what's the application for us? Who is this person in our lives? This person is not an atheist. This person is not someone who disregards God or has um, you know, no good opinion of him. This is someone who believes in God, or at least says that he does, who participates in the church, who may um, show the appearances of the Christian life. Um, but that person, in some ways, has severely misread or made excuses for the character of God and excusing his own life so that he can do what he wants to do. Um, and in some ways, that's even more pitiable than the prodigal son or um, the embezzler or the liar because this third slave had great opportunity and squandered the opportunity. 
And that is really the lesson of the parable of the talents, is that we've been given opportunities and there are few tragedies greater than having a great opportunity and wasting it. And I think um, this is something that all of us understand pretty well on a very fundamental level. Um, we've all experienced these things where we had an opportunity and we didn't act on it. Um, and there are few um, things that are more bitter feeling and few feelings that will engender more regret in our lives than those opportunities that we didn't take or those opportunities that we wasted. It's the girl we didn't date, it's the investment we didn't make, it's the job we didn't take, it's the battle we didn't fight, it's the gospel that we didn't share when we had the chance. All of these things are missed opportunities and it's these moments of squandered opportunity um, that are, I think, some of the most tragic moments in our lives. And that's what we see here in this third slave. <clears throat> and so we see that the master was justified in his response. The slave, rather than just taking ownership of what he had done or bearing the responsibility for not managing his master's uh, talent well, he instead blames the master for uh, his failure to do anything. Um, he accuses the master of two things. Number one, being hard and unforgiving. And then two, reaping where he did not sow or gathering where he scattered no seed. Um, now, if you think about that, if you're going to go reap a crop that you didn't sow or gather a crop or you didn't scatter the seed, what are you doing? You're stealing. Someone else planted it, someone else did the work for it, and you're going to go take the result of it. So he says that the master is hard and unforgiving and that the master is stealing. Um, and so he was saying it would have been no use for him to invest the master's talent. No matter what happened, it was not going to be a good move for him. Let's say he had taken the, the talent that the master had given him and he had worked hard with it and um, gone and traded. <clears throat> then any gain that would have been realized, the master would have taken, um, even though he did the work to gain it. On the flip side, if he had um, mismanaged the investment, maybe made a poor investment, took a risk that didn't work out, and he had lost the money, his master is hard and unmerciful and wouldn't have um, been forgiving in a situation like that. And so either way, it's not fair for the slave. Why would he do any of these things? And so the best thing he's going to do is just sit on it and give it back to him when he comes back. And there he says at the end, see, what you have is yours. There are a number of implications, I think, that we can draw from this third slave's behavior. First, he clearly did not know his master. Um, he makes these accusations about the master that aren't true. Um, his master was obviously not hard and unmerciful because the other two slaves had no problem doing exactly what the master said. When you make an investment, you're taking a risk, and they knew that, and yet they still did the work that um, they were called to do. And um, we can see here that they probably expected that the master was going to be merciful and was going to be compassionate. And we can say that about God, too, right? <clears throat> um, anyone that knows God would never say that he's unmerciful or um, uncaring. We would say that he's always merciful, he's forgiving, he's compassionate and patient toward his people. That is the character of God. Um, and that was the character that this slave had misunderstood about his master. And the second thing is that the master is not stealing when he gets his return. It's his money. It's his talent. And so anything that's earned on that belongs to him. And this, this slave would participate in the benefits there as managers do of companies today. But nevertheless, the earnings of the company belong to those who own it, not to anyone else that comes along. And so the things he accuses the master of <coughs> are, not <coughs> are not accurate things. And of course, the master doesn't buy the excuse. He says basically, oh really, that's how I am. He says, if you knew that I was like this, if you knew that I would reap where I did not sow and gathered where I scattered no seed, 
then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Essentially he's saying, even by your own reasoning you didn't do the right thing. You had the opportunity to at least just put the money in the bank and I could have gotten a little bit of interest on it. I may not have doubled it, but I would have had something more. And for lack of a better raise, it does, or for lack of a better phrase, it doesn't require any talent to put money in the bank. So um, we can see here that the master is not buying the excuse that this slave gives to him. And so he then correctly diagnoses the problem with the slave here in his response to him, or in his rebuke. He says, you wicked and lazy slave. He doesn't accept the excuse of the third slave or his rationalization for why he couldn't do these things. <clears throat> um, he doesn't say, oh, you really misunderstood me. That's not how I am. Or, um, oh, that was kind of foolish, but try harder next time. Um, instead, he gave these talents to the servants not because he wanted to earn more on his talents, but he was testing the character of the, the slaves here. The first two proved to be um, worthy and received the commendation. He says, well done, but then he says, good and faithful servant. He's not just saying that the work you did was good, but that you are good. You did the right thing. You managed this well. <clears throat> and in the same way, that testing on the third slave came back in the other way. And so what's particularly interesting, I think, about the master's accusation here um, is his choice of words. He calls him wicked and lazy. And those things um, may not seem like they belong together, but we see that a lot through the scriptures. Um, the Proverbs especially, just over and over and over, like a drumbeat, point out that the lazy and the unrighteous are often the same person. Um, I won't go through all of them here, but uh, the one that's my favorite is in Proverbs 22, 13. Uh, it says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I will be killed in the streets. And you don't think much of it, but then you start to think about it, and you would expect that proverb to say, the coward says, there's a lion outside, I'll be killed in the streets. But that's not what it says. It says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I'll be killed in the streets. The implication, of course, is that he's just making excuses. And he doesn't really want to go outside and do the work or whatever he has to do, and so here's all the reasons why I can't do that. Um, <laughs> when we were um, coming back into the office at work, we had a person um, in the office say that she couldn't come in anymore because she had gotten so big during COVID that if there was a fire, she wouldn't be able to use the elevators, and so she wouldn't be able to get down the stairs out to the street. <laughs> and you just kind of have to laugh when you hear things like that because she was very capable of walking down the stairs and just didn't want to come into the office and made an absurd excuse for why that um, would not be the case. And so um, this is the point for us to consider here. The, the lazy man and, and the man um, that makes excuses are often one and the same here. We're giving rationalizations for why we don't want to do the things that God calls us to do. And what's interesting here that I think is perhaps the most important point of application in this parable is why is it the man that only receives one talent the one that's punished here? Jesus could have told the parable very easily where the man with the five talents buried all five of them and then came back and said, here's your five talents back. Um, and we have categories for that in our mind. People that have great opportunity and squander all of it. You see this very often with um, children of rich parents 
that um, turn out to be kind of useless because they've had everything given to them. Or athletes that get this great wealth and they squander it all um, within a year, or someone that wins the lottery or something like that, and they squander the things that are given to them. It's a very common thing for us to see in our lives. Um, but we are often um, willing to give excuses to those who have been given less. And so I think Jesus tells the parable in this way to illustrate exactly that point. Um, the one who perhaps had the best excuse, who was given the fewest talents, who maybe had the most limited blessings or the smallest privileges, that one who would seem to be the most excusable was not excused. And his point there is that whether we've been given many talents or few talents, whether we've been gifted in many things or few things, whether we're going to be used in great things or small things, in things that are high profile and very noticeable, or in things that are small and unnoticed, in all of those things, we have to be faithful. And so um, this is the application for us here. I know we're running out of time here at the end, so I'm going to get to a few questions for us to think about as we um, part in this lesson here. The point is that God has made all of us by his design um, in certain ways, and he's given each of us varying talents and also talents in varying degrees. And so um, the question is, how are we going to use those talents for his glory? Are we thinking that God is going to return and he's going to call us to account for how we've lived our lives? Um, we can be saved from judgment, perhaps, um, by um, repenting and following in him. But then there's another question of the salt that's lost its saltiness. Those believers that are just kind of useless. And God is saying, don't be that person. You've been given these tremendous blessings and each one of us has been um, tasked with some component of our lives that can be used for God's kingdom. What are we going to do with what he's given us? And so the questions we should ask ourselves are, are how we apply that to our day-to-day -day lives. How do our lives fit in with God's plan for the world? That's the first question we can ask ourselves. Um, are the things that we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, are the talents that we're using things that are going to be used for God's plan ultimately, or are we just working on our own empires um, in the process? Are we living and leading and serving in a way that the master is going to give us that well done, good and faithful servant um, at the end of our lives? When he comes to take account, is he going to be pleased with how we've lived? Or is there going to be um, uh, uh, instruction against us for the way that we've mismanaged what he's done? Um, are we taking personal responsibility for the talents that we've been entrusted? This is what makes, I think, our lives meaningful. God has given us something to manage for his glory. It's the assumption of responsibility there that is ultimately going to make our lives worth living every day. That's why people find so much um, satisfaction and meaning in their work every day because they've been tasked to do something and they're managing that thing well and that's why people find value in that. How much more should that be the case with what God, with what God has given us to use for his glory and for his kingdom? Um, are we making excuses or blaming the master for being hard and unmerciful and what excuses do we need to dispense with in our lives? How are we rationalizing the reasons why we don't do something? Is it because of high gas prices? Is it because of us being afraid to talk to someone and we're really shy? Is it because of all these different things? There's a million excuses that people make about things. Um, and how are we rationalizing the, our failure to do what God has called us to do? 
And then finally, how are we encouraging one another to use the talents that we've been given for God's glory? If he's made each one of us in a way that's valuable and in a way that um, is ultimately meaningful for his kingdom, then we have something that we can do for God's people. And so how can we encourage one another and help people to do what God's called us to do in our lives there? And so I know we are very out of time here. Um, but the parable here, to bring it back, is the focus on the kingdom of God. As we're waiting for the Lord to return, and as we think about the manner in which we should wait and the way that we should live until that happens, the warning here is to not be so preoccupied with the things of this life that we neglect the things that God's called us to do. How are we using our talents in our work, in our schools, in our homes, um, in the church? How are we using the talents that God has given us for his glory. We should always remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, who says, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so God's people can be watchful of his coming, but we have a lot of work to do until he comes. And so um, let us be mindful that he is going to return and it will come like a thief in the night. <clears throat> and we should be prepared that he will come at any moment um, and perhaps when we least expect it. So we should work um, as though he's going to tarry longer and that we have to devote ourselves to his kingdom now and in this life. And so how can we extend um, or expend our lives um, however long he gives us or however long it is until he returns so that we are making the most of the master's talent, that we're generating that maximum return. Um, if we take this seriously and undertake the responsibility that he's given us, and assume the task that he's placed before us, then I think we too can hear that word from the master at the end of our days. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how um, it teaches us about who you are, about your character, and about how you've called us to live in this time. Father, we ask that you would work in our lives, that you would help us to see that you've given us tremendous talents. Um, all of us in this church have bags full of talents and um, they're heavy bags with great responsibility. How are we going to spend our lives um, in a way that will honor you and glorify you and do the work for your kingdom that you've called us to do? So Father, help us to be mindful for that. Um, help us to um, be faithful in discharging the, the responsibilities that you've given us here and um, help us to seek to honor and glorify you in all that we do. We pray for Wes as he brings us the message in the next service and um, we ask that you would simply be glorified. It's in your sons and we pray, amen. Thanks, everyone.